All right, so welcome to Southern Steep. I am Isaiah Webster, and I am being joined for the very first time by Rushab Shah. <laughs> if you listened to last week's episode, or the first one of the season, you know that there's six co-hosts for this podcast, and Varu and I are just two of the six. And so we wanted to have like a voice, quote unquote, for the for all episodes. And so we chose Rushab. So we hope you find that voice soothing because it's the one you're going to hear for the next 18 episodes. <laughs> If anyone from a meditation app is listening, I'm here for my services. (laughs) So season one versus season two. So when we did this podcast last year, Brew, we really were focused on introducing this concept to, to, to CBOs, to community, to people who didn't know a whole lot about NASDAQ. And we, we had a lot of fun. And we, at, at the end of the season, we realized that there was a lot of folks that we didn't include that we wanted to speak to. So two of the areas that we really struggled in season one, in my opinion, was there weren't a lot of men and there weren't a lot of people from rural communities. And yeah. not that we didn't want to include them. It's just not the way that it shook out. And so part of the reason why we have the guests we have today is to, to begin to kind of fill in some of the blank spaces that we didn't actually get to to hit upon in in the first season. So season two is is kind of like an intentional lean into um, rural spaces and 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 just a more diverse group of voices within this space. I really can't wait to see who we pull together. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. So I'm very excited because um, today's guest is uh, a mentor, a former boss. Maybe a friend. I'll ask him if he considers me a friend. <laughs> but we have with us today Claude Martin. He is the chief executive officer for Acadiana Cares in Lafayette, Louisiana. And Acadiana Cares is a client-centered organization dedicated to empowering vulnerable communities uh, affected by HIV and AIDS. It also addresses inequities in healthcare, homelessness, and substance use issues that change the lives of people that are living with HIV or at risk of living with HIV by embracing a holistic approach to a healthy and self-determined life. So Claude, welcome to Southern Steep. How are you? I'm good. Excited to see you, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So Claude, let's just, so I believe it was 2001 that you hired me to be the empowerment coordinator for CARES. I know you don't remember the year, but I think it was around there. Yeah. Um, first, why did you, <laughs> how crazy can you be to hire me? And secondly, what do you remember about empowerment and about, you know, me beginning this work? Because that was really the beginning of me doing HIV work. Well, I think you, you were the, actually the first empowerment coordinator, weren't you? Yeah, and it was a pretty big deal for us, too, to do that. I think it was pretty progressive. We even went to the state and asked them to fund this program that I'd come across, and they wouldn't fund it. And so we went to, um, God, now I can't remember. He's a guy that made a bunch of money uh, off of some dot com thing that he did that he was funding gay things in Colorado Springs, Colorado, did a bunch of stuff, but we wrote a grant and asked them to fund it. And so they agreed to do it. And so we were able to hire you. And then once you were doing it and did such a great job of it, the state then 
wanted to fund them in every, everywhere. So it was like part of you doing such a great job and implementing that program uh, got the state to then uh, come up with the funding to be able to offer it to other regions too. But I mean, how, how could we not have hired you in, in Lafayette? I mean, you know. Uh. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to Lafayette because uh, I think that Claude's making a, he's talking about something else there. I think it was the Gill Foundation. Am I am yeah, I Gil, misremembering? Right, exactly. That's who it was. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, the Gill Foundation. Greg. Yeah, and so for those of you unfamiliar with Empowerment uh, Project, it was a community-level interventions really designed to um, attract uh, gay men, younger gay men in particular, to get them to have conversations with themselves and with their community about HIV, STDs, what was impacting their lives. And it was one of the first interventions that I worked on that didn't really center HIV. And by that, I mean, it was really more about what was important to them and what was going on in their lives. And obviously we were trying to prevent HIV and that was a part of it. But what drew them in were the events that we would have that were not necessarily leading with HIV. It was leading with, we're a community, we're trying to develop um, kind of like a social network, if you will. Remember this was before all of the apps and before all of the Facebooks and all of that stuff. And so it really was a different time but I had a lot of fun, Claude, and it, and working at CARES really was eye-opening because I, I got to work with people from all walks of life, as you know. I got to learn about, you know, the community that that you you still work with there in, in a, what we call Acadiana because I'm from Louisiana as well. And so it was, it could not have been a better start in terms of understanding why this work is in, is this work and why we we want to do it. Because I feel like I always tell people, Claude, that, you know, if you want to have a career in HIV, start as an outreach worker or start as someone who does testing or start as someone who has some type of frontline interface with clients, because it is the best education you can ever really get, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it does give you a, a perspective of what's really out there and and what the essence of the work is really about is connecting with those individuals face-to-face. Before we get into CARES in particular, can we talk a little bit about you and and how and why you got into this work? So you've been in your current role for more than two decades. Uh, Before I get to that longevity, how and why did you get into this work to begin with? Well, on a a personal level, um, I, I was getting clean and sober in 1984 and so kind of waking up and looking at what was going on and uh and people started getting sick and i started seeing people in the in our 12-step rooms people were coming to those to groups and stuff and were sick and they were coming back from major cities and stuff so i you know in looking at what i want you know i was really doing a you know deciding what I was going to do with my life or where I was or whatever at that point early on in my recovery. And so this just came, you know, kept coming up to me that this was something that I needed to get involved with. And um, I went to New I We started, we were already starting CARES, but the big thing that worked as a catalyst for me was I went up to New York and saw the original production of The Normal Heart at the public theater and just, you know, it just rocked me as far as my foundation. And so I came back and I was on fire with 
you know, after seeing that play and stuff and really committed to the work after that, after seeing that it was, you know, for me seeing art that transformed someone, you know, um, and, and as a result, we actually took me, took us two years, but two to three years after I saw it in New York, we ended up putting it, putting the play on in Lafayette, uh, which was very contra, you know, it was, you know, in Lafayette in 1987 for uh, men to be kissing on stage and stuff um, was, uh, was a really cute, my mother and father were coming to the play. I was in the play and I had the kissing scene and my little brother with his new lover were double dating with my mother and father. And after the play, my little brother says, girl, Miss Thing, you never, I never thought I'd be double dating with mom and dad to go see my oldest brother suck face with another guy in Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> 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 but, but as a result, anyway, but that play really worked the same way it did for me in that this art transformed our community. And we had this really robust response. The, the show sold out every night uh we ended up putting it on a second time but that that actually everything we had tried to do up to that point we really couldn't get the community moved or 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 uh involved in the larger community and we did that play and it suddenly gave everybody permission to really get involved and to start doing the work and wanting to do the work on in lafayette and that that's then this for me that was all volunteer stuff and i kept doing the volunteer work and involved with cares and then at some point i decided to go back to school and i went back and got my masters in rehabilitation counseling but focused on uh as a, a life interrupting event for rehab was hiv at the times so that was in the 90s and i used hiv as uh, what you would rehab someone from is to help them put their life back together after an HIV diagnosis. And so I worked, got that at the university. And then this job, which is what I, I had wanted to do for quite a while, uh, came up about two years after I finished my graduate degree and I applied for the job and got the job. And so I've been working here uh, ever since. So anyone in, in that part of the state who knows anything about HIV knows Claude Martin. You are kind of like um, really well known for the work you've done. And I think you've been in your role now since 1998, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, did you ever think about doing something else or has this been firmly your well, life's work? Well, I did. I had a, I had a, uh, a business. I was self-employed for the 20 years before I did that. I'm old. And um, I had a, a tropical plant. Uh, business and landscaping business for oh, I love years that. before I did this. Um, so I, when I took this job, I still owned the business and I made the kept ownership of the business for the first year that I was employed to make sure that it was going to work. And then I sold the business uh, after I'd been here for a year. I had totally but, forgotten about that. I had yeah. forgotten you were such a green thumb. Yeah. And old. <laughs> I think that's the most beautiful part of your entire story, too. <laughs> so before I turn it over to Baru, he's going to talk to you about management and longevity and, and leadership. Let's talk about CARES for a second. Um, 
How many employees now? What's the focus of the work currently? And is CARES still an acronym or have y'all done away with that and just go by, you know, CARES? Oh, yeah, we, we've done away with it as far as presenting it to the public. Um, but it's still legally, we have not changed the name uh, for the acronym of Concern for AIDS, Education, Research, and uh, Support. Uh, just because it, so many of the grants and all the work that it takes to change your legal name, we just have, we just haven't done it. Uh, and uh, so it's still uh, legally, it's an acronym, but uh, officially, it's just one big word. And then, what's the what's the focus of of the work that you all are doing now? So, our, the core of our work and what drives us still is the is HIV and the communities that are affected by that. Um, what we've done in the last 15 years is started looking at, um, you know, prevention and really saying, what can we do more than just talking to people and telling them to wear a condom and testing people and stuff. So we, 15 years ago, looked at what populations were most affected by HIV. So homeless population, substance use, those were areas that we um, decided to start to expand our, our reach in and felt like if we could start to intervene before or get, help someone get sober and stable or house them and get them stable, that they were less likely uh, to be at risk for HIV. So we started building these programs around that concept. And so we now have a pretty robust, you know, when we looked at that back 15 years ago, we had a housing program that was about $100,000. Today, it's $1.2 million. Uh, same thing, we, we had some counseling that we did for substance users. Now we have a, a residential 36-bed uh, licensed facility uh, for substance use treatment. And we are uh, doing construction right now to open a medical detox and inpatient facility so that we will be able to provide from the beginning of a continuum of care and in, in substance use from the very beginning to the exit because we have an outpatient program too. And all of that, you know, the thing that's so important about that here and what we fold into all of that is this non-judgment uh, approach to things so that our people will have places to go that they're accepted uh, for who they are. And, and the reason we did the substance abuse program was I kept seeing people that were coming out of, out of uh, regular traditional treatment programs, and they were never talking about their HIV status. I mean, the, the programs were either telling people, you know, we can take that up one-on-one, -on -one, but we don't need to bring it up in group because it may upset people. So people that were dealing with one of the biggest stressors in their lives we're going through this treatment program and never really developing or, or being able to talk about a, the biggest stressor in their lives. So that was really what pushed us to open a substance abuse program. Uh, specifically, we started it for people with substance with a, HIV, and it kind of expanded into a much bigger program. Uh, but it is uh, focused on, and, and we've gotten a reputation in Louisiana for being very accepting to people living with HIV are people, LGBT people, non-traditional individuals. And we, you know, 
get people that work offshore that come into our our facility too. And one of the things that that has worked and, and it's wonderful in the program is that people living with HIV are able to begin to develop what I call a, a language of their own to talk about their status uh, and to do it with people that are not so much a member of their tribe, but the general public so that they begin to de stigmatize, but also remove that the power that their status or their diagnosis had over their lives because they've learned how to start to process it and talk about it. They've gotten reactions from people. They've learned how to respond to those reactions and process and stuff. So it's been a really, you know, I think it's an important part of that process for people that are living with HIV that want to get into recovery to have a place for them to start to build that kind of foundation with. Um, it's ve- and very similar to the same thing with our our housing program. We've we have uh, specialized in you know our uh, people living with HIV, but we also provide housing for the general population too. So part of what we've done in the the HUD funding that comes to this area is that we've been very proactive about making sure that we secure a piece of the pie that comes here specifically for people with HIV so that we re, re, we work really hard to keep that piece of pie in the funding stream and in the five-year plans or the 10-year plans for our community to be able to continue to get that funding to, to make sure that our clients are being taken care of too. Uh, we also, I don't know if you know this, Isaiah, but we, about five years ago, we commit, we opened a clinic. So we now have, uh, primary care. We have HIV specialty care and mental health care. Uh, a couple of months ago, we bought a new piece of property, a couple of blocks from here that's on the, on the, on Willow, which is a main thoroughfare in Lafayette. And we'll be moving all of the clinics, uh, work over there uh, to the new location, uh, which we're excited about so that we can then also start to integrate harm reduction models for substance abuse stuff. It's been, we couldn't really do it here on site since we have an abstinence-based program. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have down the sidewalk, you know, uh, you know, a needle exchange or some <laughs> say, well, I could go, you know, Oh, I like this program down the sidewalk. Oh, or, did you like, say that you're running an abs? Claude Martin is running an abstinence program. <laughs> yeah. Well, abstinence based for re- substance abuse. Oh, 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 I see that. I see that. So I want to, I want to get Bruce Schaub's voice into this space, but we're going to come back and have a much longer conversation about Lafayette because I, I want, <laughs> you're the perfect person to draw a, a mental picture for people and what that part of the country is like, uh, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear now. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, shift us into some talking points about kind of leadership and management longevity. So, you know, how has for you, Claude, working in the HIV kind of workforce evolved over the years? And kind of what are the critical lessons that you've learned for younger CBO leaders in the South? Well, so probably for, for one of the things that I've tried to do here is that um, is to look at, at ways that we can fund programs and fund our core mission uh, without relying on fundraisers, because we're never going to be able to do the kind of work that we've expanded into doing 
relying on the traditional kind of nonprofit fundraising stuff. So we've really looked at creating programs that generate and create income for us that then is we're able to take that income or those profits and move them into programs or start programs as seed money. And then the expectation is as we start these other programs, uh, they will be able to be self-sufficient on their own, or they will at some point be able to support other programs. Um, So some of the ways that we've done that is that here in Lafayette, Uh, There was a nursing home corporation that was looking to donate. They built a new facility and they wanted to donate their old facility to a nonprofit. So we got, you know, really involved and tried to move to get that position. And so we were able to secure it. So we have, we were given a five acre, 76,000 square foot facility that most people thought we were crazy, you know, like, I can't believe they've taken that (laughs) in that neighborhood and stuff. But so we, you know, looked at it and, and took it on and we have developed the whole property now, you know, when initially, when we got it, you know, I was all excited because I said, Oh, fine. And now we have something the bank can take away from us. So now I can, you know, negotiate with them for a bigger line of credit. And they were like, Oh, you know, well, that's, I don't know if that's valuable or anything. Now they, they bring their corporate executives to our place to show them what we've created um, with this donation that we got. And the whole, we have about 80 people that live on the property. Uh, We here locally, we have about 65 people that work for CARES here um, in, uh, at this spot. And then we have a larger contract that we have with the state of Louisiana, that we have another 90 employees that work within that larger contract. And that that is one of the things that we've done too, is that a lot of the work, so we make an administration fee off of doing some of this administration work that we do that then creates income that we're able to fold back into the local work that we do too. Interesting. Wow. I need to see photos of this now. This sounds yep. like the, the place to be in town. <laughs> so we, and we've gotten three, two more nursing homes too. So we have this pretty large real estate portfolio that has tenants in it that are renting the property from us. And so that money is money that we raise to be able to do the stuff that we do as far as our core mission work goes. So we've looked at developing those, those donations into income producing uh, real estate. So you kind of touched on, you know, I was going to talk to you about sustainability and how an organization like this does it, but you really went through the, the details of walking us through that. So I actually now want to ask you about something you talked about earlier, which was your housing program. You know, you, established that recently over the last, I guess, five-ish years, it was a bigger focus. So, and are there any best practices that you're able to share with our audience on how you established that program and how you've kept it going? What I, I always, what I, what I did and what everybody needs to do is they need to get involved with their planning councils. So every city has a community development program or and HUD, every city gets HUD money. And so they have to come up with a, a five-year plan of how they're going to address housing needs or infrastructure needs. And you and if you have to get into that process, 
and advocate and bring evidence to them that there is a need for housing for people with HIV. And so are people with substance issues or are women or whatever. And you, if you get, you have to get into those plans. And then once you're in that plan and it's, you know, that this is something that the, the community will address, then all the funding that comes up, you then have the evidence when you apply for that money to be able to, they have to fund you because it's built into their their plan that they have to address these needs that are in the plan for their municipality. That's, so, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to kind of just say, Claude, it seems to me that housing is just not always, quote unquote, the sexy thing to do for these CBOs. Like folks want to do social marketing campaigns. They want to do other things. But for whatever reason, in my experience, and this is, I don't know how you and Veru feel about this. It feels like to me that housing is never the sexy program to propose, but the ones that are successful have been developed in just the way that you described. And maybe it's people don't have that know-how. They just don't have that, that they don't understand how it works in such an intricate way. But I, I have I have noticed that CBOs seem to shy away from housing for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, to, to me, it's two. There's two things that happen when you do that too. Is that you can acquire assets, so then you become much more bankable to where your you know your banker and the your legitimacy um, is much stronger. So if you know we have a we need we have a huge need for for cash flow and so if i go to the bank and say i need 2 million dollars worth of a line of credit you know they want to know what they can take away from you um you know if we default on the loan and so you have this something that they can put their hands on so it's an ability for you to then finance and also finance for other building the the program or expanding programs because you have assets and stuff uh, the, you know, the thing about housing too, is that it, it is when, when I, you know, when we started really looking at it, our big slogan was housing is healthcare because, you know, you can't expect back then, you know, the, the protocols, the medications people were taking. I mean, it was, it was, you know, eight, 10 times a day, you had to take medications before a meal, after a meal, it had to be chilled. It had to be there. You had to have a house to live in. And if you didn't have a place to stay that was permanent, you couldn't even follow these, the drug regimen programs that people had. So, I mean, that was one of our big things was that this is healthcare. You know, now we know that it's the most effective way to immediately stabilize someone. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, if your life is stable, you're less likely, um, you know, to do lots of things that can get you in lots of trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the list is long. Yes, the list is yes. long. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's simple stuff like that. You know, if you don't have stable housing, then, you know, the choices and the decisions you're making about where you're sleeping tonight or who right. you're sleeping with tonight so that you have a place to sleep, you know, become very, you know, a primary decisions or primary things in your life that yeah. people, most people don't understand those kind of choices. Right. You're surviving day to day. You're thinking about what you're going to make it and need to do to t- get to the next day. Right. I, I hear you. And so I want to now really hear from you about, I guess, your leadership personally, you know? So what for you, Claude, continues to drive you to do this work after all of these years? <laughs> well, I, you know, for me, it's, it, it is from the beginning, you know, I, I, 
you know, am blown away coming to work every day still that I get to walk around and see what, what has happened and what has been built from a bunch of people getting together to care for the people that they loved. Mm. You know, so I know mm. what this place looked like. We were working out of our cars, you know, our, our case management program at one time, we were working out of the trunks of our cars and handing out pamphlets and going to visit people. And it was all before we even had our first paid employee. Mm. Um, you know, the prevention department was a, uh, you know, handing out condoms, but it was an answering a service that would pipe, would get take calls from 10 to two and send them to somebody's house to answer the calls. And so I walk around now and see what this infrastructure, what we built from that kind of concern and interest in our community. And, you know, I'm, I get giddy over it, but we have staff today that are complaining that they have to share a room with somebody, you know, mm. that, you know, and I go, <laughs> I can't remember when we did, we had one computer for everybody in the whole damn agency. And now everybody has their own computer. <laughs> but we, we have come a long way. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the beauty of that is that in every town across the country, just about there is an Acadiana cares with the kind of infrastructure mm. and the potential to build on all of that all across the country. I mean, all of this was put together by community that cared and loved their partners or their best friend or their brother or sister that was sick. And that energy that built all of that and drove all of that um, is, is the result. You can see it all over the country. And it's beautiful to witness today. Yeah. It's grown into something and flourished into something so rich yeah. and powerful. And I guess, as a follow-up, now I'm curious to know, you know, how are you, after all these years, mentoring the next Claude Martin? Ooh, uh, hmm. well, we have a couple of them here. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, one of them, you know, I have, uh, we, one of my first persons I hired was Alton Thornton. You know, Isaiah remembers Alton. And Alton, yes. and he was hired as a case manager on the first, when I got my job here, we already had a staff in place. So the first person that I hired when there was an opening was Alton and he's still here. He's the COO now, but he won't use that title. Uh, he's, he calls himself the uh, director of housing. Um, but anyway. And what so, type of spell have you put on Alton to keep him with you for this many years? Because as you know, he is immensely talented and smart. And I would have yeah. thought he would have cut you loose by now. <laughs> Tried to, I mean, I've actually, we've tried a couple other, you know, we've had like our housing authority executive director's position came up, but he loves working here. He says that every day. He says, you know, I just love my job. Um, you know, I, I am excited to come to work every day. We have lots of things that we're doing and it's exciting work that we're doing. And I think he's still part of that, you know, that's so excellent. Still, yeah. And his specialty now is, is the housing. He kind of took over that whole drive. And so he is a big, he's one of the leaders in the city as far as a housing advocate and stuff. He's on the board of directors for our homeless coalition. Mm. Um, and he's taken a very uh, leadership role in the community as far as housing goes for the whole community's housing issues. We love that there's plenty more of you all around, babe. <laughs> that we can you lead on. You want too many more of me, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's um so let's circle back to uh Louisiana Lafayette and the ruralness of it. Yeah. So Claude, 
you know, a lot of folks always ask, how can we reach rural communities? And they want, they always want to know best practices and people are always eager to share what's working in urban areas. But the constant challenge, as you know, is trying to make them, trying to explain to folks how some of this stuff is never going to translate for rural communities. And as you know, I'm from one. So, so oftentimes I find myself telling the urban cities, you know, that's the great program. That's a great social marketing campaign. That's a great tool you're using, but this is not going to fly (laughs) in a place like Lafayette. How do you describe the ruralness of your community to folks who haven't lived there or, or, or visited there so that they can understand what it's truly like? Let's see. Um, <laughs> well, I can tell you know it. Just to let you know how rural it is, uh, at least once a year, and thank God it's just once, maybe twice a year, we get a call from an emergency room in one of the rural cities, towns, uh, that they have someone living with HIV that's at the emergency room that are untreated have not been treated. They have been uh, basically are in the same condition people were in in the mid 80s when we were first started doing this work. And and every time we, you know, connect with them, get them into care, start working with them, they were living in a situation that they did not know how, they knew they were living with HIV, but they did not know how to explain to their community or their family why they were taking meds. And so they chose to not take meds or not treat their their diagnosis because they couldn't figure out how to continue to get the support. And they were afraid that they would be put out or that they would not have the support of the family or the community where they were living. So they chose, made a a conscious choice to not uh, take medicine uh, because they didn't know how to explain it is basically what most of it boils down to when we run into these things. Now, the great, wonderful thing about this is that once they start taking the meds that we have available today, you know, it's there within three months there, you know, it's just like a miracle, but it's, you know, when you think about what they endured the years that it took for them to get to that crisis in the emergency room and what they endured in the isolation and the the loneliness that they must have felt all getting through that. Now, usually, you know, it it never seems to be as bad as what they thought the reaction was going to be. But, you know, what we have here and the ability that we've created for housing here is that the beauty is that we can bring them here and they can live on our in our facility because we have housing and and you know we have a cafeteria we have everything here so we can get people out of those situations but a lot of times if we don't know about them then we can't now the state has been doing some really great work at one time we had about 200 people in this region just in our region that we knew were living with HIV but were not in care Now, they have done some incredible work, and we've gotten that number down to probably somewhere around 50 people. So they've gotten, they've done some wonderful work in getting people um, into care. Um, Another example I have for letting people know what it's like to be here is that when Louisiana had its very first female governor running for uh, 
for governor, which was very exciting for Louisiana, uh, that uh, Governor Blanco was from Lafayette. Uh, so this was our hometown where, you know, hometown would rally behind her, but she was a Democrat. And so she won, but she did not win Lafayette Parish because we're so conservative and so Republican in this area that they wouldn't even vote for their hometown girl because she was a Democrat. And what is striking about that is that, as you know, Claude, the Blancos, both her and and her husband, um, they are huge figures in that community. Like he was uh, a vice president at, at the university that both you and I went to the University of Louisiana, USL, prior to that. So he's a well-known figure there. He was a coach and then a part of the administration, and she was extraordinarily well-known. So the idea that she wouldn't carry that area area handily really does tell you about some of the preconceived notions that people had and and still have about the role of women about and how how sometimes they will put politics above everything yes. else right. because in every other sphere of life people would have gone to the to the mat for the for that entire family in in Lafayette. Yeah. And you know in, in that kind of stuff is in in the work that we do here we we are uh, probably one of the most funded nonprofits that the city of Lafayette fundle you know we apply for money for programs and for stuff that we're doing on our property. And we have been very successful in getting that funding. One, because the city knows that we're very responsible and we do what we say we're going to do. We run a really professional organization. Um, But that wasn't where I was going with that. Um, But so, but with that, I know that we also have to be very neutral in the approach that we have, because if you know, they like funding us, but if we get too vocal or we get too pushy with some, you know, that could jeopardize. So I'm constantly walking this fine line about being an advocate and trying to get change to happen, but also not in, not isolating or alienating Acadiana Cares from some of this political decision-making um, because we can't, you know, it's always that fine line. Do we jeopardize some of the funding that we're getting for direct support for people as opposed to um, trying to advocate or, or take a much more um, liberal stance on some, on some of the things that are happening around here, too? So it's challenging, you know, not to, to be able to walk that that fine line sometimes about taking a neutral stance sometimes because you don't want to. And, and, you know, those kind of things can happen. They don't have to be, you know, obviously that they're happening, but those decisions are made by decision makers that have some pretty conservative ideas about things. I guess and, I'm now curious. Yeah, I was just, I'm curious now how in the moment of those political wins, you're also navigating COVID and other epidemics going on, you know, has that impacted anything down in Acadiana? Well, well, yes. not even like the pandemic, but half of the politics around it, you know, changed how care is received and preconceived notions of folks who need care. Well, we were, I mean, we've taken a, a very strong stance on it right now. We, I mean, we have the staff has to either be vaccinated or they have to be tested every week to be able to um, to work. And we have we lost a couple of employees because of that. Um, Sorry and, to hear that. Huh? I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. Right. The testing part was what pushed. 
they said it was infringing on their rights for us to, you know, I said, I don't care where you get tested, but you just have to get tested. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, Claude. I don't understand how anyone who's working with people who are living with HIV or who might be might be living with HIV. I don't understand how you can expect to be in that care provision right. and not be vaccinated. Like to me, that's that's well, it beyond. wasn't really it, none of these were frontline. They were you okay, know, okay. administration gotcha. stuff. Some people. Uh, but even I mean, we we have a congregate setting here. We have people that live here. Um, it's. You know, even if we didn't have people with impaired immune systems, we, you know, because we're all, we have these people that are living on the property. It's like I kept up. We have to make sure that this home is safe for people that are living on the property. You know, it's their home. We happen to just work here. But for 80 people, this is where their home is. Absolutely. Uh, it's been very, I mean, we've had some, you know, I'm sure y'all have seen all this. You know, we've had our, you know, we have a new young uh mayor that um uh, has been you know very controversial about covid and stuff it's just been uh you know crazy stuff i mean with funding i mean a couple of you know we have some of the stuff that's happened is that we've gotten all this covid money that's come down and you have some uh decision makers or politicians and stuff that that think they can do anything they want with that money you know and so they start <laughs> Well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then people kind of have to come back and tell them, you can't do that. This money was, this money is, is targeted and, and specifically the federal government has said, this is what you use the money for. So it's caused lots of slowdowns in the funding and stuff. Like right now we have a, um, a million dollars for emergency housing that we formed a, a coalition with two other uh, homeless groups. Uh, that was some of the COVID money that came to the city. And because they decided to use some of the money to fund some of their pet projects, the whole thing had to go back to HUD to be reviewed and it slowed the whole thing down. And so, you know, we, this thing was ready to go six months ago, but because of this, we have not been able to implement the program uh, because of, not understanding or thinking that your, you know, your viewpoints are going to be able to override what the, the, the funders, you know, the grantors are saying. So that's, I mean, just for us, yeah. that's some of the stuff we've experienced that, um, that I've seen it slow down because of attitudes and stuff about how government and, and all that should work or how they don't know, or they don't believe in government. So, they think that they can just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Um, Brew, I don't know if you had another question, but I wanted to squeeze this one in because we're coming up on our time with Claude. So we just have a few more uh, for you, Claude, but we have to, so I have to ask you about gay men because it's an important topic to me, to you and to Vrushab. Um, Talk to us about... Um, the lives of gay men in your community, how they're doing. I want to particularly prep uptake uh, among the community as best you can kind of tell from kind of where you sit. Um, and, and since this was once kind of like the work that I was doing, how are, how are, how is our community doing in Lafayette? Well, it's, you know, since COVID it's, you know, it's messed up. I mean, it's we we feel very disconnected and, all of that uh what what i don't think that we're talking enough about is the 
what I think is a uh, epidemic of meth, and you know you don't like me to talk about this, but sex and uh, and the unmanageability of those two things together is creating really high numbers of syphilis infections and HIV infections within our community that I care very deeply about. But to, to me, those are some of the things that are driving uh, this, this dual epidemic. And, uh, and because of COVID, so many people have gone kind of under, not underground, but there's, they're not as much community support where they can do events and things where they could be distracted maybe from some of the activity and stuff. So there's much more activity um, on one-on-ones and hookups and things like that, that I think are, they're not getting some of the support that you would get from more com- coming together in community. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it does. And and that's unfortunate to hear. I will say this has been on NASDAQ's radar. We're actually working on a two-day virtual workshop intended for primarily CBOs, but some health departments as well, that touches on both um meth, drug use, and, and gay men in particular, and particularly the mental health impact on them and on the folks that are working with them. So, in other words, how are the folks that are doing this work with gay men dealing with the constant kind of uh, burden that comes from seeing this and doing this without getting burned out or feeling like, you know, they're taking on the toll of that? So we're actually focusing uh, an entire TA meeting on, on this topic on mental health and, and gay men and, and drug use. And that was specifically called out in that agenda. So I'll make sure that that you and your team and the folks in Louisiana receive the memo that, about that. I think that meeting's taking place uh, later this fall in November. Yeah. I th- and just to say other part of that too, Isaiah, is that I don't think that we're doing enough. I think it's across the country in understanding the, the healing that needs to happen for people that have been into the Kim sex scene and stuff there's this sexual healing i mean for people to be able to go back to or to be able to heal and be able to have a healthy sex life and stuff after this takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of professionals to work with people and that takes resources and stuff to be available to the community and and about talking about stuff that people are already so uncomfortable talking about that you, it's hard to even advocate for it or for the individual to advocate for it, you know, and, and even begin to, to put that knowledge out there into the community. I think there's some resistance to, um, you know, and, and we need to start talking about that because there's a lot of our, the guys in our community that are struggling uh, with healing in these areas in their lives. And it, you know, it just be, you, they have a very big challenge in trying to put their lives back together after these kinds of traumas that they've experienced. All right. So we want to, you know, really segue into two questions that we love to ask all of our 
um, presenters and all of our guests on Southern Steep. And this really comes down to fundamentals of the South. So the first question is why, what do you love about the South? And the second question is what do you want to see for the South? And so Claude, I'm curious to hear from you on a very fundamental, you know, organic level. What is it about the South that energizes you? What do you want to see for the South and what do you love about the South? Well, I think probably one of the biggest things I love about the South is we have something here called who's your mama, who's your daddy, you know, <laughs> it's that, that there's this connectedness that we have to community and to the people that, that put the community together. So we still, especially, you know, when I think of the South, I still think of rural, uh, not so much metropolitan, uh, but so that whole business of where do you come from? What what are you part of? You know this this connectedness that we have. I love about that. Um, I love going, you know, to the grocery store and running into people that I know at the grocery store. I mean, I I have friends in the city that just hate that. You know, they say I like to be anonymous. I don't want anybody to know my little brother's that way. He lives in Fort Lauderdale. I don't want nobody to hot wave at me and tell me hello and know me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love running. We like to keep to ourselves. Yes. Yes. And so I love running into people or seeing people I haven't seen in a while, going to things, you know, and and just visiting and talking to people and connecting like that. Um, What I'd like to see for the South is, um, you know, we struggle so much with resources uh, in being able to bring equity to the to uh, the people that live in this area too. Uh, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. And for people living with HIV, you know, Ryan White and Hopwa sometimes are the only thing that's available to people in the rural areas where in, you know, in the more wealthy areas of the Northeast and, and in metropolitan areas, they have, you know, foundations and they have all this other money that's available for people that can qualify for things, but so much in these rural areas, there's just not the resources to, to bring equity compared to what other, other areas of this country are experiencing or have. Yeah, yeah. I always say the, the main striking point for me is we want justice. That's what yes. we want in the South. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, for here, if I, you know, uh, Isaiah knows, you know, where Turkey Creek is, which is a little south of where he lives. If for me to get a client from Turkey Creek to the doctor here in Lafayette, it's it's cheaper for me to go and find a sale price on a on a flight from Lafayette to San Francisco <laughs> round trip wow. than it is to get somebody yeah. from Turkey Creek to Lafayette. Uh, which is kind of explains the equity, you know, that we just don't have, there's no transportation systems. There's not any of that stuff here. So you have to either send people over there to get them and bring them back and then bring them back and then come back to Europe. It's, Mm. you know, that's the kind of uh, stuff that we experience in the rural areas here. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole podcast, Claude, on the transportation issues and the challenges that it presents yeah. For for rural places in Louisiana and really all over the South. I mean, Guatemala has better transit system than we have. I mean, really. 
They do. All, I mean, in Mexico and stuff, all those buses and all that, we don't even have that here. I mean, you can get all over the place in those Latin American countries compared to over here. Absolutely the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? I could talk to you all day. We will probably have you back at some point <laughs> because I feel like we just scratched. Yeah, let's have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this you are again. An absolute treasure, a resource, and I'm glad that you are still, um, still doing this work with such passion. Um, it's it's just great to see. Um, and thank you. Uh, I can say this publicly. Thank you for 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 helping to put me on such a great path and a great foundation. I really appreciate that and appreciate you, Claude. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you too. And I always say that you were one of the uh, best employers we had, employees we had. Oh, don't you don't have to say that your check is already in no, the mail. It's true. And I tell him, I said, I can tell you this, that the one beautiful thing about Isaiah was that he worked and was responsible and did his work until the minute he walked out of the building. He didn't quit two weeks before and just watch the clock. He worked until the very last moment that he was paid to work here. And yeah. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, Lafayette means a lot to me. It's where I went to school. It's where a lot of my great friendships were forged. And, and so it, it's, it's a special place for sure. So thanks for joining us on this podcast. We appreciate you and good luck with all the work down there at Acadiana Cares in Lafayette, Louisiana. And the website is acadianacares.org. Yeah. Thank all you right. for inviting me. I had fun. Great to Thank see you. Thank you, Claude. Welcome. It's great to see you. You too. Thanks. All right. Take you. care, Claude. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Rushab, I think this is your first episode that you've recorded, I think, correct? Or since the since we did the one with all those co-hosts in here. It's the first one where I've been a co-pilot. Absolutely. How does it feel? <laughs> oh, you know, I'm on cloud eight and nine. <laughs> I love the conversationality of this. I love where we can dive deep and also crack some jokes. I really love the vulnerability we're able to access here. And I definitely love that everyone here is down to have a good time and be serious when things get serious. So this is a wonderful way, I think, to talk about, honestly, so many so many things that come up in the South. And it's just a shame that we only have an hour to do it because, you're like you said, we really could talk about transportation for two hours or housing mm-hmm. for another two hours. and. Um, you know, that's just something, that's just the the way it's been baked in. But we will continue doing this and talk more. So I'm very excited about this. Yeah, and I'm very glad that Claude made time to come on. You know, um, I worked with him more than 20 years ago now. One of the things I remember, and I was, I was, I was very young at the time, not so young anymore, but he was executive director. He was very passionate. He was the first one in and the, and the last one to leave every day. So his commitment to the job was obvious. He was, you know, smart as a as the whip. And he always came to work in denim jeans. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a leader like of his caliber do that. Mm-hmm. And I often thought, why, what is he trying to convey? What, what is, what does this say about his leadership style? And I think, I think what I, what, what I took away from it was that, you know, when Claude shared that story about how they used to work out of their trunks before they even had a space to work in, and they literally, that that was the work before it became what it is now. I think for him, that remains the work. The idea that I would be doing this even if I, was a, I were a volunteer. And seeing him in the jeans as the executive director doing that work from sun up to sundown, it really did convey, even back then, that 
the work was more important than the performance. You know what I mean, Rue? Yeah. And so, and even talking to him today, I think he still has it. I still get from him that the work is more, is way more important than the performative aspects of, of like being a leader. And so it's, it's one of the great lessons that I took away from him that I think just says so much about his leadership style. And I think about, I think about how other leaders show up in spaces and how you can tell what their commitment is or isn't based on, you know, some things. <laughs> what was so clear to me was his passion, right? Like, I think it touches on what you just said. He, the passion not just transcends the work that he does, but it transcends over into the community that he's serving, right? I think he's been doing this for so long because he loves his community. He loves Lafayette. He loves the people in it. He loves his siblings in Lafayette, as I would call them. And a leader is someone who doesn't lose that North Star. And for him, I think you were able to pick up on it and touch on it because he... He didn't ever change. He is the person who he has been this whole time when you met him and when we met him. (laughs) And I think that shows why he's such a powerful force down there. That shows why he's a leader. Um, I really can't wait to see what what else he does. Well, it was a pleasure to partner with you on your first outing. I thought you did a great job. So good luck uh, teaming up with those other folks. You know, (laughs) I can't, I don't know who knows how Nicole will show up. No, I'm going to do my best. You know that (laughs) Bianca Ward. (laughs) She's a fun time. I'm I'm wishing you luck there as well. (laughs) All right. I'm Isaiah Webster. I'm Brishab Shah. This has been Southern Steep. Thank you so much for listening.